Standing Ready, the podcast that gives you an inside look at the untold history of the VA's medical innovations with your hosts, Katie DeLaCensory and Sean Spittler. When you pitched this show to me, I was not convinced. Mm-hmm. I was like, we're an innovation podcast. You're, you're not. How, does, how do we connect <laughs> innovation to volunteers? Because you think very simply, very nice people who work in a waiting room and, you know, fill out paperwork. Right. Right. You have that candy striper idea. Like, you know, do you do you want some candy? Right. You know, but really, it it goes back to to the founding of the Veterans Health Administration into the Civil War. And it's something that has continued to evolve and innovate throughout wars. And given the pandemic today has still continued to innovate. Mm -hmm. And when we we talk about innovation, it's not just objects. It's not just technology advancements. It's how we fulfill our roles. And I was very excited to hear more about what the Center for Development and Civic Engagement is is doing in, in the pandemic. And I thought I had an idea, but I was just kind of blown away by what Sabrina Clark, who is the director for the Center for Development and Civic Engagement, and Prince Taylor, who is the deputy director, and also the head of the Compassionate Contact Corps, were able to, to share with us about what how they're connecting with veterans through the COVID-19 pandemic. All right. And so we're just going to dive right in. Our conversation was, was very organic from the get-go. What you hear is just us tr- starting talking, and, and it just took off. So we never officially started. It just happened. (laughs) We just dove right Right. in. All right. Enjoy, everyone. So there's a new name for VA Voluntary Service, correct? That's correct. Okay. It's not VAVS anymore? It's, you know, it's so funny that you're saying, like, it's not VAVS. I want to tell you that not until probably three years ago did I ever hear that acronym like put together like VAVS. It's always been V-A-V-S. And mm. I've been in VA for 30 years today is my anniversary. Oh, uh, congratulations. So, yeah. Nice. <laughs> and I've never heard VAVS. And it was just like, where is that coming from? It's like VAMSI. That was never a thing either. So what's the new name? The new name is the Center for Development and Civic Engagement. That is really long. So how about CDCE? And you won't forget CDC ever. CDCE. VAVS seems very obvious what that name means. So why the name change? It is such an awesome question. So VAVS, everybody knows, voluntary service. We work with volunteers. The thing about a name, it definitely is your your identity. And Mm -hmm. we got locked into an identity of being only about volunteers and what went missing was the donations, the philanthropic activity, the partnership Mm -hmm. activity, um, and all the things we do with, with corporations and other nonprofits and that piece of the work, the development piece about really forging relationships. These things were always just critical to who Mm -hmm. we were, but our name didn't represent that. You know how mm-hmm. like, you look at people and it's like, she doesn't look like a Susie, but you know, it was, <laughs> you know? And so right. we figured after all of this time that we really wanted a name that mm-hmm. would really depict who we were. Right. Right. So how long was it VAVS? 75 years oh, this so, year. Whoa. So on our 75th anniversary, 
Yeah. We're announcing the name change. Yeah. Is that amazing? On your 30th anniversary Uh, of working. Yep. (laughs) Right. I guess that would be an official sort of coming out, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I love that we're in a history podcast and we're moving and innovating forward. That captures so much of what we're trying to do here. Right. What what does it sort of mean to you reflecting on your 30 years today? How how have things changed? How have they remained the same? What have you seen in that time? You know, it's it's interesting and I will get, I could probably make myself um pretty emotional thinking about it, but uh That's what we want. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's been an incredible journey. It represents evolution. It represents evolution for me as a as an individual. I started my career in East Orange, New Jersey as a music therapist. Oh, wow. And I mean, I went to that area because I, I'm a musician and I went to the area to the New York, New Jersey area because my voice teacher at the time was like, you know, Spring, maybe you should try this. Give it a shot. See if you can get yourself in and around New York or you could go overseas and see what your career does. Well, I was too chicken to go overseas. That's like, mm. oh, I'm not so sure with that. But yeah, I can go to I can go to New York. I can go to New Jersey area. But I had to have a job, and it was just like I took a job. The first job mm. I can find is a music therapist, and it was at VA. I was like, you know, I'm gonna stay in this area around three years. We'll see where my career goes. Right. And three decades mm-hmm. later, here I am. But here in voluntary service. And CDCE, voluntary service at the time, was almost, it it spoke to me. This work spoke to me. And everything I realized with all the other several moves that I made in VA, I sort of transitioned to a voluntary service role, and I came back. And when I came back to this job, it felt like I had come home. I was still working with volunteers. I've worked with volunteers my entire career, even though I wasn't always in this field. So when we think about the history, I mean, anybody could have been here, um, but it was me. And what happened at that time? And I also represent like the first <clears throat> African-American that's ever served in this role. Oh, wow. It's Black History Month. So what? Also, everything is converging. Yes. And, and talk about East Orange, New Jersey. That was where the first African-American hospital director was after segregation had ended at um, NVA hospitals. So that's that's another special connection too. Which... It's amazing and things have changed and here we are forging a new path. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, a, I'm excited to, today is like the first day for a new history. It's what I feel yeah. like you turn a page oh, and yeah. start writing your own story. So that's where we are. And this is perfect for us because the template, so to speak, of, of this show is we talk about the history of a subject, and then we talk about where it's going. So to be kind of literally right in the the center of that as we're turning the page is very exciting for us on this podcast. So we're we're really excited to get into that today. Awesome, yeah. And and I really appreciate too your perspective on history. You're that p- person in that moment, you know, and you're aware that you're sort of in in this time. And reflecting on history, you feel the weight of that and that impacts you how you move forward. And it just makes the present so much more meaningful, knowing everything that has happened in the past. So I, I wish more leaders had that perspective that you do. Thank you. 
Sabrina, you talked a little bit about the roots in the soldiers' homes and how how far back that goes. And just to kind of bring in a little bit of history to to the conversation, volunteers really paved the way for the creation of of the Veterans Health Administration going back to the Civil War when you really had the first, even though there have been, you know, men and women contributing in some way to to war and relief efforts throughout history, really it's during the Civil War where you see that kind of grow and be more large scale and more solidified. And talking too about names, it was the U.S. Sanitary Commission, which was the first private relief agency during the war that had ranks like Clara Barton and Walt Whitman and Frederick Law Olmsted, who really supported sick and wounded soldiers, who then really lobbied Congress after the war to, to create these soldiers' homes as a place where they could get health care and, and rehabilitate after the war. So you really sort of see this effort that volunteers drove to establish the first healthcare for veterans after the Civil War. And that grows through the Red Cross, which partnered with the Veterans Bureau and later the Veterans Administration in the First World War. And then Omar Bradley kind of comes in in 1946 and founds the Special Services Department of, of VA, which includes not only volunteers, but also chaplain services in the canteen. So do you kind of want to talk about what happened in 1946 to really create the VA Voluntary Service, now the uh, Center for Development and Civic Engagement? <laughs> Good job. Yeah. And there were actually um, eight organizations that formed uh, our first National Advisory Committee. So not only did just the work of voluntary service become formalized, but then there was this advisory arm to it that allowed these organizations to, to make recommendations and, and give us suggestions for how we could be more support for veterans. The Red Cross was obviously one, the American Legion and their auxiliary at the time, the DAV, Disabled American Veterans, and the Disabled American Veterans Auxiliary, the United Services Organizations, and that organization is, is still around too, the Veterans of Foreign Wars and their auxiliary. So that's the, like the eight organizations that, that started our first National Advisory Committee. What's awesome is that all eight of those organizations remain as part of our organization 75 years later, and now we have, you know, 50 or so more. I think the only other thing that I would add at that time, it was uh, James Park, who was our first director of voluntary service. And now we have a James H. Park Memorial Scholarship Fund, but this is what allows us to provide scholarships to students who volunteer in VA. Most people don't even know that that happens. So you're you're saying like high high school students can volunteer and then get scholarships? They can become eligible for scholarships. Yes. Wow. And so and the thing is, is that. Hardly anybody knows that, and we need to do a better job at telling the story, which is why I'm here. And so that's really awesome. But what's beautiful about this, let's talk about a real partnership. 
for all of this time that these organizations have been paying for those scholarships. It's not VA. It's the organizations who became part of our first advisory committee and others now that we've added on that have raised money year after year to provide scholarships to these students because they serve in VA. The highest scholarship is $20,000 that one wonderful civic engaged mm -hmm. student uh, wins to help fund their education going forward. It's, it's really uh, amazing. But then there could be eight, 10 or more uh, scholarships that are given at other denominations, um, the lowest one being even a $500 scholarship to students who may just volunteer for a summer. And we just want to make sure that those students that come, that maybe they get $500 for some books, but maybe that brings you back next year. And if you know that if you continue to serve and you're doing well in this, that you could be eligible for a $20,000 scholarship. So everybody start volunteering early. You never know what's going to happen. Right. I mean, yeah, if we have any high school listeners or, or anyone yes. with high schoolers listening, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's get the word out on that. So how do volunteers evolve and, and, and innovate? And how has the, the role of volunteering evolved and and allowed for innovation over time mm -hmm. yeah i i think that's that's a good question i think if we went back to 1946 and we looked at, or even before, and saw what volunteers were doing. I mean, essentially those individuals were coming into our facilities and uh, you know, you had the, the candy stripe people who were, were coming in and bringing water and, and helping to bring that comfort and aid. And then I think that's really where we even started in VA, those types of roles, people bringing um, books and snacks and being of comfort to veterans. And I think the evolution of voluntary service and the role of volunteers really turned into um, uh, more of a strategic role for the organization. So it wasn't just, you know, what would volunteers like to do, but it was like, what do we need volunteers to do? And the other thing is not only what, but why do we need that? What What is the impact that that would have if we were able to offer such a service? And mm -hmm. I think where we have gotten over time is really um, going from nice to necessary. That's what I see mm -hmm. our volunteers and our programs be becoming right now is that it's great to be able to, um, to be able to do something that is is nice for veterans. And we've done that forever and we'll continue right. to do mm -hmm. those things. But what we're trying to get to and not away from, I want to just say, we want to augment the nice with the necessary to mm -hmm. say, where is the opportunity for us to do something that significantly is, is meant to change the way this veteran's health outcomes are, mm -hmm. are realized. Um, right. There's a, there's a, couple ways we're doing that. And I know Prince will talk about the Compassionate Contact Corps, so I don't want to take that away. But I can tell you about some other roles that where volunteers are coming in now that we're building our, our telehealth uh, volunteer program. And what's so important about that at this time, again, is this 
think about where telehealth has grown so much specifically during this, uh, during the time of the pandemic. But then with all of that, there are veterans who don't know how to use the equipment that is necessary for a telehealth mm-hmm. appointment. And so the staff, even a help desk might not be able to keep up and they with everything, with all the demands being put upon them for to deliver that. And so I remember going to to um, Dr. Galpin and saying, I wonder if we could have volunteers help with that. And literally in, within two days, there were a team of like 15 people saying, absolutely, when do we get them started? We need this. I want it to happen. So now we're, we're building a program whereby volunteers can get, get equipment and they can make test calls for veterans. And so that those that veteran can be assured that they can complete a telehealth appointment instead of a clinician trying to make an appointment and realizing that the veteran cannot, sort of doesn't understand how the telehealth appointment works. So what happens is that not only did maybe you didn't complete the appointment or you didn't get really what was necessary there, there might've been some training that was happened with sort of the clinical appointment, but it might've had to be rescheduled. Who knows how long that would have taken in order for that to now be a face-to-face appointment. So when we talk about like healthcare, is that this is providing access to care. And if we can have volunteers who are not limited by time, meaning, oh my gosh, I have so many test calls to make, we're telling these volunteers, you take all the time that it's necessary to get this veteran acclimated to the telehealth system. If it doesn't work, then we'll notate that and you make sure that the VA knows that this veteran is going to need an in-person visit. This doesn't work. But at least that decision doesn't have to be made at the time of the visit. And so I think that this is, you know, definitely one of those assignments that's really going to make a difference in in VA. You know, talking with you, Sabrina, about kind of this thread through history that, you know, there's there's name changes. It's the Sanitary Commission. It's your Red Cross. It's VAVS. It's Center for Development and Civic Engagement. And, you know, it brings us from from the Civil War to to today. There's like a, a thread through history that connects everything and people's technology changes. But the the willingness to give and to serve is is always there. And that's kind of what I want to uh, start with you, Prince, a little bit about is we've seen how it's adapted and changed by, you know, wars have kind of marked this, you know, different periods of transition. But today we've sort of, we've seen a pandemic as a marker for a transition. So can you tell us a little bit about how things have changed with COVID-19 and how you're able to kind of innovate through that and, and what's come about because of it? All right, great. First, let me say, Wow, I've been riveted <laughs> this entire time. Uh, I, I've only been in VAVS for a little while, uh, about a little over two years. And so it, it was really interesting to hear Dr. Clark talk about coming home after she had been there and left and came back. It felt like coming home to me, too, even though I'd never been there before. And so it it requires a special kind of person. Sometimes we might need a little um, clinical help <laughs> for it, but... It definitely requires a special kind of person for it. And if you get the right person in this in this program office, it's pure magic. Mm-hmm. And the leadership that Sabrina's been showing has been astronomical. And I definitely want to make sure that that is on the record. 
Um, it's on the record. Now. It's on the record now, and, and I mean it sincerely. But to your point, uh, I've had this conversation a few times uh, because we hate that we're going through this pandemic, this global pandemic. But the one thing that we've always noticed as a country, as a community, is that people rise up. People meet those challenges. And that's exactly what happened with us last year. But we had a different program that was a caregiver respite program. And we were sending volunteers in the homes of veterans to meet them and to fill this huge gap for our caregivers. And it did not seem wise to continue doing doing that during a pandemic. Um, right. All I saw mm-hmm. were headlines in my head that said, VA sent someone to my house or VA sent me to someone's house and this happened. And so we suspended that program. It was the Volunteer In-Home Visitor Program. And to their credit, the coordinators of that program, and there were only six, seven, or eight of them, they said, Prince, we understand, but the need is still there. Right. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't argue that. And so I said, well, how, how can we still fill this need? And they said, what about telesupport? What about something where even though we're not going into the homes, we're still reaching out to the veterans mm-hmm. and we're still giving these caregivers a level of respite? And so that's what we did. We, we thought that it would be very short-lived, we were wrong there. Um, we were also wrong in another aspect because it, it didn't take long before we realized that the caregiver wasn't able to really do a whole lot while we were um, engaging with the veteran because they were still at the house. They didn't know how long those phone or video calls were going to last. Right. But what we were doing, what we were able to do was connect with more veterans than we had initially planned. Mm. We were able to connect with more lonely veterans, more socially isolated veterans, and and it just, it gave us a cognitive shift of what we could do. Right. And so I said we started with like seven or eight sites last year. Uh, We were still at seven or eight sites in June, but then we started telling the stories to the other voluntary service sites out there in the country, and we picked up a few dozen. And then we started telling the story to some of our internal partners, and we started picking up a few more dozens, and then a few more dozens. And then we told the story to the Vision Network directors. Sabrina and I did this last month in January, and they told their folks about it. And now, and I don't want to blow your minds. (laughs) Go ahead, blow our minds. (laughs) We are at about 81 sites right now at some stage of implementation. And this is without a congressional mandate. This is without the secretary saying, you must do this. This is with facility directors, physicians, social workers, other clinicians, VA CDCE staff saying this is the right thing to do for our veterans. This will benefit our veterans. And, And this is what I mean when I say even out of a tragedy, we come together, we rise up, and, and we try to do the best that we can for our vets. And, and it makes me proud and humbled. And, and if I can just wax poetic just a little bit longer. Do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our last secretary, um, Mr. Wilkie, signed a Secretary's Honor Award, the Eye Care Award, for those original coordinators. Mm. Because they didn't have to do this. And not only did they do it and monitor it and develop it and tweak it and make it better, 
they also now serve as implementation mentors for all of these other 80 sites out there so that no one has to feel alone with trying to do it on their own. Right. They will help with the training. They will help build your program for you. And that's pretty amazing. And that's really why they were honored with the award. And those presentations are happening um, around the country, even as we speak. Some have already started. I, I just want to share my own anecdote real quick. Uh, I have a grandfather who's through a stroke and diabetes. He's he's lost both of his legs and the use of his left arm. So he's got he's got one useful limb. And uh, now he's not a veteran, but I think the the point will still be made that he oftentimes feels very down. You know, the other day he was just talking about how useless he felt. And we had to point out to him that he is anything but useless because he actually, he, he's got a little registry. He calls these people every day and they're other older shut-ins like himself. And they just talk to each other all day. And we were trying to encourage him like, you, no one else is doing that. That's you. That is your ministry. And so the, the power of a simple phone call is so powerful. It, it's, 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 it's almost visceral. I, I just, I can't encourage people enough who might be considering like, well, how do you volunteer during a pandemic? That's how, and it's important and it's vital. My heart goes out to anyone who is doing that and, and my praise and appreciation as well. Hey, Sean, God bless your grandfather. That's a beautiful story. And I have to say, I've heard many other stories like that. I I heard one yesterday about a vet in Minneapolis that said, wow, I'm so glad you guys are sending someone to call Mm -hmm. me. Um, It makes me feel, it makes me feel valued. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll tell you uh, another story about one of our vets. He was married for 53 years and his wife passed away in July. They had children, but he's not close to his children. Mm-hmm. And he told his VA social worker, I am so lonely without her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just wish I had someone to talk to. And that social worker knew about our new program, Compassionate Contact Corps, and connected him with us. And then we connected him with uh, a Salvation Army um, volunteer. Right. And immediately, and this is what's so fascinating to me, immediately the veterans and the volunteers are saying, this is meaningful to me. This is helping me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a wonderful thing that we're doing. And there's a term for it, social prescribing. It's social called social prescribing. prescribing. And, and you kind of touched on my master plan uh, <laughs> down the line, because if we do this well at the VA, I think that this is something that can can actually have an impact for folks like your grandfather around yeah. the country that are not necessarily veterans. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what's been so difficult about this pandemic is that lack of human connection. And it's just shown how important it is to, to have that interaction with a fellow human being. And it's so difficult when during this pandemic, you can't have that. And I also think that what a what a time to have that because we have the technology now to enable us to do that and it's it's really it's interesting yes the technology has been very helpful sabrina was saying just a second ago about some of our partnerships and one of the things that's happened is we've partnered with AARP and Rotary Club, but we've also partnered with a nonprofit called Telehealth for Seniors. And what they are doing with, with this um, pilot program that we're, we're in the midst of is 
teaching the, the veterans how to use this technology. And, and so you're right, we do have to keep the technology in mind as well as we are developing and moving forward to our next 75 years. So I was I was talking with a friend yesterday about how, you know, things that have been innovated during the pandemic you know, aren't going to go away when the pandemic ends, you know, like once you see, you can't unsee. So what what does the future hold for for um, CDCE? Well, I think what I see for the future of CDE, CDCE is one that that the whole country will see the diversity of people and organizations that we will bring in. There will be organizations that never thought that there was a place for them in VA. Like we don't do this particular thing for veterans or we're, we read to, to children, but why couldn't you read to veterans who are isolated? Um, uh, the types of donations that will be needed. We've been in that place where, like you say, the technology is here. Well, guess what? When we started, as Prince was talking about Compassionate Contact Corps, I also thought about the opportunities that we had to just make those connections, like you mentioned, Sean, that we were get we're getting donations from organizations like the Fisher House Foundation who were giving us tablets just so that veterans who couldn't have the visitors in the hospital could still make that connection with their family and friends. And there could still be events that were uh, were occurring, like the group bingo. Well, we could set that up in the room and put that on Zoom and we can do that all yeah. together. Well, see what happened with that is that once the pandemic rolled on, is that even that gathering in that hospital area was, wasn't something that could be done anymore. So now our veterans were a little more isolated in their rooms. And so guess what? We need more devices. We can still do that. But so the types of things we never would have said we needed, we needed Facebook portals, but now mm. we need a whole bunch of Facebook portals um, because every veteran should have that. That should be something that is offered to them. Um, the things that we're having to do perhaps right now, even as we have our these volunteers who are going, going to pick up our, our patients who live in rural areas or don't have any other way of getting to the hospital, we still have volunteers doing that work. And by the way, have been doing that work throughout the pandemic, whatever was needed and they were taking all the necessary precautions. The things that we have been able to do to expand services for female veterans, it's incredible. People don't know this one, but we were did um, in Manhattan hosted our first virtual baby shower. What an oh. awesome thing for you know female veterans, and it was beautiful. I watched it. I was just like uh, I was amazed. Nice. Why? Because our volunteers and our partners at our facility leadership there, in the terms of our volunteer manager at the time, is packing boxes of all of the gifts and donations that would be given at this shower. And then they got mailed to the homes of these veterans and with a do not open until the day of the party. But so many wonderful things are happening. 
who does that? When, and that's what right. I'm thinking is that do you think that VA healthcare isn't something special? That did not happen in your, you know, in your hospital or your, or your clinic. Those, those things didn't happen. The drive through events that we've been able to hold. And I think that when you talk about what's changing, it's the way we do things right now. It really is about innovation and evolution because it's like that's the way we used to do it. But what could we do? This is like a world of possibilities right now. And I think that's the state that we have to live in. Um, and what I call, and Prince has heard me say this a lot, in a state of wonder and curiosity is mm -hmm. that we have to keep asking questions, what more we could do, and then sit back and dream and wonder. I wonder if we could go here. I wonder if this is possible. We just have to stay in that space because yeah. what is it, we don't know. It's un, that is unstable. Wonder and curiosity. That little piece of just being flexible and adaptable in this time is bliss because it it just keeps us growing and responsive to what veterans need. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you both so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. Absolutely. Uh all right, everyone, that was Sabrina Clark, the director of the Center of Development and Civic Engagement, and she was joined by Prince Taylor, the deputy director of CDCE. We want to thank both of them for their time, and we will, uh, we've got one more episode. We do have one more episode. I'm really excited for this one. It's on sports and the history adaptive of sports, sports and the adaptive sports yeah. within VA. Another thing we can we can trace back to the 1860s. So Man, everything's everything. going really adaptive sports goes back that far. I know you you wouldn't think it, but I'm really I, I there's don't trivia in there. You got trivia for yeah, me next week yeah. on that. You'll one. you'll have to just join us for the next episode to to hear more of this. Okay. Wow, that is exciting. That's a great bookend to our first episode on prosthetics. I think so. Yeah, it's really going to kind of frame our season perfectly. Yeah. Okay. We will see everyone next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.